Please remain standing as we read uh, uh, the scripture that uh, Zach will be uh, delivering to us this morning. Ephesians 5, verses 3 through 14. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine in you. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, thanks, Mike. Good morning. How's everybody? Good. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Zach Lee, one of the ministers here on staff. Super excited to be with you this morning. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 3. Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 3. While you're turning there, I want to tell you a little story. Back when I was single, so back before I met Katie, before we were married, back when I was a single guy in college, I got invited to go down to Austin to uh, basically just witness a buddy of mine who was getting married down in Austin. So drove down to Austin. I was an hour late to the wedding, so I missed the whole thing, but still got to go to the reception, all right? Now, when we were at the reception, remember, I'm single at this point. There's a bridesmaid that catches my eye. There's nobody sitting with her, no boyfriend, no ring on her finger. And so I decide, you know what? I'm going to go ask this girl to dance. Now, this is terrifying for two reasons. One, as a guy, you always have to psych yourself up to ask a girl to dance. Number two, I'm a terrible dancer. So this isn't going to go well no matter what happens, right? When I dance, it looks like I'm drowning or something. Or someone's hitting me with a taser. There's a lot of unnatural movements. And so I psych myself up, and I walk over there, and I'm nervous, and I say, Hi, my name is Zach. Would you like to dance? And she looks at me, and she goes, Yeah, sure. I'm like, yeah, sure. What do you mean, yeah, sure? You, yes or no? This isn't like a, like a multi-choice answer. And so we go out and we dance, very innocent dance. We're just kind of swaying back and forth. And I'm just asking her, hey, where are you from? How do you know the bride? And she's giving me just these quick one-word answers. Well, I met her in college. Yeah, I live around here. And she's like looking away, and I'm like, what is the deal? Do I have a terrible personality? Do you hate my awful face? What is happening? And so I just can't figure out if I'm just terrible at this. And so right after the dance, she goes and she sits down, and then I go sit down, and I just don't know what happened. I'm wrecked. I feel like I've lost all my game. I don't know what's going on. And so I go up to the bride, who is also a friend of mine, and I'm like, listen, okay, yes, it's your special day. I've got a question for you. <laughs> your bridesmaid over there seems to really not like me. What is, what is the deal? What is the deal? And she said, that one? 
I said, yes, that one right there. She goes, oh, I just found this out. She's secretly married and secretly pregnant, and she didn't want to tell anybody because she didn't want to ruin my special day. And then she said, oh, and by the way, her husband's a marine sniper, all right? Now, in that moment, I was hit with several different emotions, okay? The first emotion was guilt. Nothing happened, but I didn't know she was married, and so I just repented. I'm like, God, I was almost a homewrecker, right? The second emotion that hit me was, I knew something was wrong with her. I knew something was wrong with this girl. She didn't want to date. She didn't want to dance. I didn't know what was going on. Now, as soon as I found out that this woman was married, do you think I continued to pursue her? No, all right? No, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to pursue a married woman. One, because that's unrighteous. And two, I don't want to get shot, all right? So at that moment, I, but before that, I had thought one thing, and it led to certain actions. Before that time, when I got new, or, or when I got new information that she was really married, it led to different actions. New information, new knowledge, a new identity led to different actions. Now, the reason I tell you that weird story is because that's kind of the entire book of Ephesians. The entire book of Ephesians is be what you are. We used to be darkness. We used to be evil. We used to not know Christ. We used to belong to the devil. But then through the gospel, by meeting Jesus, we now have a new identity and it transforms everything else about us. That's the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 1 through 3, chapters 1 through 3 is all about theology, how God has predestined you, how God has adopted you, how God has loved you, how we're saved by faith in Christ and there's nothing we can do to earn salvation. And then the second half of Ephesians is, therefore, this is now what it looks like to be a Christian, okay? The new knowledge transforms our action, okay? Now, that's important because today in this text, there are a lot of do's and don'ts. There are a lot of things this text will tell us to do and not do, but here's what you've got to keep in mind. Two things, really, really important, okay? The first is that these commands assume you've already read the first part of Ephesians. Christianity is not go do all these things and then God will love you. It's God has loved you in Christ, therefore go do all these things. It's not do all these things to be saved. It's because God has saved you, therefore do all these things. So as I go over these commands today, which many of these are very convicting, don't forget the gospel. Don't forget what Paul has already said. Ephesians is meant to be read all together, and so we're supposed to see these commands and know that we can only even follow these because God already loves us. He's already saved us if we know Christ. Keep those things in mind. The second thing to keep in mind as we go through these commands is this, is this idea, this kind of principle. All of God's commands are out for our ultimate joy. All of God's commands are for our ultimate joy, okay? I have a tendency to think that there are a bunch of fun, sinful things out there in the world, and God just doesn't want us to have fun, like he's some sort of divine killjoy or something like that. That's not the case. God knows how the world works better than us, and so his commands are for our joy, not to stifle our joy. I don't let my two-year-old son, Judah, play with knives. Do you know why? It's not because I don't want him to have fun. I want him to keep his fingers attached to his body. Because I know he'll have a lot more fun in the long run having his fingers the rest of his life than giving him a little bit of happiness now as he gets to play with a knife, okay? That's how God gives his commands. He's not out for our temporary happiness, which is fleeting. He's out for our ultimate joy. So as we look at these commands, keep that in mind. God gives us these things because he loves us. You ready? Verse 3. Some spicy things in here. Verse 3. But... The first thing we see in verse 3 is there's a contrast. Last week, we were told how we should walk in love. There's now a contrast of how we should not walk. That's what the text is going to say. But sexual immorality 
and all impurity. Impurity, by the way, in Greek, that word is just a general term for anything that sinfully defiles you, okay? But sexual morality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Here's the first thing this text is going to say, that if you've been transformed by Christ, what your life should look like, that there should not be sexual immorality, okay? Let's, let's break down what that is and is not. The Bible's ethic on sexuality is actually very, very simple. Within a marriage, let me rephrase that for our culture, within a monogamous marriage, let me rephrase it again, within a monogamous heterosexual marriage, let me rephrase it again, within a monogamous chromosomally heterosexual marriage, you actually have a lot of freedom when it comes to sexuality, okay? Within a monogamous chromosomally heterosexual marriage, it's meant to be fun, it's meant to be exciting, it's meant to be adventurous, it's God's gift to married couples. You actually have a lot of freedom in that. I say that because I've met a lot of Christian couples who, for some reason, feel guilty around this area with their spouse. Anything outside of that, though, anything outside of that is what the Bible calls sexual immorality or sin, okay? That it, it, the Greek word that's used here is the Greek word porneia. What does that word sound like, by the way? It sounds like porn, right? That's what that is. Pornography is a graphe, a picture, of sexual immorality, porneia. Porneia is kind of a catch-all phrase, kind of an umbrella term for anything outside of marriage. This would include premarital sex, adultery, homosexuality, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, okay? And so what this text is going to say is that sexual immorality should not be part of the Christian life. Sex is kind of like fire. When it's in the fireplace, it's really good. It produces heat and warmth and light. But when it gets out of the fireplace, it burns the house down and destroys everybody, okay? Within this context, it's good. Outside of that context, there are issues. Now, this is one of these central issues of our day, of our culture. So I want to read you a few statistics when it comes to the area of sexual immorality, okay? Now, bear with me. I've got some words of grace at the end of this, but I want to give you some of these statistics so you see the culture in which we live, so we're not ignorant of the times. Let's start with pornography. Every second, there are 28,258 people watching pornography online at any one second, over 28,000. One-third of pornography viewers are women. So in case you thought this was just a guy issue, sin is an equal opportunity hater. It stretches across gender lines, race lines, socioeconomic lines. Sin is a universal human condition. Every day, there are 116,000 searches for child pornography. The average age that a child first sees pornography is between the ages of 9 and 11. So if you're thinking to yourself right now, Zach, there are some kids in this room. Why are we talking about sex? Two reasons. One, it's in the Bible, so we have to talk about it. Two, according to these statistics, these are things your kids are already talking about, thinking about, and maybe watching on their friend's smartphone, okay? So if you have not talked to your kids about this, you need to. And if you need help, Carl Brower, our family minister, would love to chat with you and help guide you through that process. That's just pornography. Another type of uh, porneia or sexual morality, sex trafficking. There are two million children that are subjugated to prostitution in the global commercial sex trade. There are 21 million victims of human trafficking worldwide as of 2012. 21 million people in human trafficking. Human trafficking is a 150 billion, that's with a B, dollar a year industry. And the city with the most sex trafficking in the United States is just a few hours down the road in Houston, Texas. It's a port city near other countries. Premarital sex. The average man in the United States has had about 20 sexual partners in his lifetime. By the time they reach the age of 44, there are about 95% of people who will have had premarital sex at some point. 85% of all abortions are done by single women, which speaks to the uh, premarital sex issue. 
In New York City, 38% of all pregnancies end in abortion. So four out of 10 pregnancies, period, in New York City end in abortion. 70% of women who have had abortions also claim to be Christian. Let's talk about homosexuality. About 78% of men who claim to be homosexual have had 100 or more partners. 28% have had more than 1,000 partners, and 79% of those partners have been complete strangers. Well, Zach, it's really just about allowing one person to be in a committed relationship to one person, not statistically. Whereas 85% of heterosexual women and 75% of heterosexual men have never cheated, only about 4% of those in a committed homosexual relationship have remained faithful. And all of this is to keep in mind that less less than 1% of the global population claims to be homosexual, right? So watching the news or social media, you would assume that it's like 50% of people that practice homosexuality. It's far less than 1% worldwide. What about adultery? About 41% of married people now in the United States will have an affair, 41%. 40% of online affairs turn into physical affairs. So four out of 10 times someone goes online to flirt with their uh, you know, high school girlfriend on Facebook or something, it turns into an actual affair, okay? 74% of men and 68% of women confess that they would have an affair if they knew they would not get caught. 53% of marriages, that's the majority, end in divorce with sexual frustrations being a high contributing factor to that. Now, let me say something about these statistics. One, I realize that statistics can be bent and misused, okay? I didn't get any of these off Facebook. I tried to use somewhat legitimate sources, but I think that I've still made an overwhelmingly clear point, which is this. Our culture does not worship Jesus. It worships Aphrodite, okay? America does not worship Yahweh. America worships Venus. This is the issue of our day, okay? This is our culture. If you lived in the fourth century, like Jeff was talking about this morning, the thing you had to fight was Arianism, denying that Jesus is really God. If you live in our culture, this is our issue when it comes to gender and sexuality. This is the thing that Jeff and Tim and Carl and I will probably go to prison for eventually, for holding what the Bible holds on these. So come and visit us. Bring us books and puzzles, all right? This is a big, big issue. These statistics should not make you say, oh, well, my sin is normal. Rather, they should shock you. It should say, this has gotten way out of hand. But I want to say this to you. Statistically speaking, there are people in this room that struggle with same-sex attraction. There are people in this room who've had affairs, maybe are currently having an affair. There are certainly people in this room that are looking at pornography on a consistent basis. There are people in here who've had abortions, whether the women who've had them or the men who've encouraged them. So everybody look at me. No matter where you fall on the spectrum, you need to hear this. There is mercy for you at the feet of Jesus, period. Nothing you've committed, nothing you've done, nothing you've struggled with is too powerful for the cross of Christ. We are these broken people. This isn't just a statistic of culture. We're included in these statistics. So here's what you need to know. If you have brought your sin to Jesus and you have repented, you are clean. You are clean. You have gone from red as scarlet to as white as snow. He has separated your sin as far as the east is from the west. If you're currently struggling with these things and you love Jesus, there is hope for you because greater is he who's in you than he who's in the world. So I just want to give you an element of hope here. Yes, this text hits us. Yes, this text is difficult and offensive, but Christ is the solution no matter where you're at. No matter where you're at. Okay? Let's keep looking. In addition to not uh, committing sexual immorality and all impurity, which is linked to the idea of sexual immorality, and the next thing it says is, or covetousness, or covetousness. Covetousness or greed, the Bible, different Bible translations will use different words there because the ideas are related. Covetousness is where you're not content with what you have 
And so you want what somebody else has. That's what covetousness is, okay? So it's not, I ripped my jeans, and so I need a new pair of jeans, so I'm going to go to the mall and buy some jeans. It's where you think that God has somehow dealt you a hand that is second best, where you're not satisfied, you're not content, you're not thankful for what God's given you, but you look with envy on all these other things that you wish you had that you want to have. Here's what's crazy about covetousness. We're committing it all the time, and nobody talks about it, and we don't even really think that it's a sin. And the Bible's going to link it to idolatry, that it's a big deal. This happens constantly, all right? By the way, do you think that greed and covetousness is more a sin of the rich or of the poor? Both. Again, sin is an equal opportunity hater. There is righteous rich and unrighteous rich, just like there's righteous poor and unrighteous poor. You can be rich and not be satisfied with what you have and have the sin of greed, or you can be poor and want what other people have because you don't have it and commit the sin of greed. Sin cuts across party lines. Now, I know what you're thinking, Zach, I wish we just had some more statistics, but on covetousness. I've got some for you, all right? 3.4 trillion, with a T, is the amount of unpaid consumer credit card debt, which shows an issue of the heart of wanting what you don't have, even if you can't afford it. 80% of Americans are in debt, and almost half of that is credit card debt. According to a study done by Harvard, 40 million Americans live in a home that is more than they can afford. Advertising is a $200 billion a year industry. Let me comment on this. Advertising is not sinful. It's not sinful to promote your product. There is a type of advertising, though, that is idolatrous that says, if you just had our product, then you would be happy. And that is simple. About 20% of people surveyed think that greed is good. Not just that they're greedy, but they think that greed is a virtue. One out of 11 people shoplift, and when it comes to coveting someone's spouse, up to 5% of Americans admit to being in an open marriage where there is allowed and consensual adultery. Okay? This is the kind of thing we struggle with, and we don't talk about it, and a lot of times we don't even realize that it's sinful. Always wanting more and more and more and more is kind of like an American virtue. But here's what the Bible's going to say when it comes to covetousness, and I want to show you a bunch of text we're going to run through up on the screen about this and the solution to it. Luke 3.14. This is where some soldiers come up to John the Baptist. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. Let me ask you this question. Are you content with your wages currently? Or will you be content when you get more? Ecclesiastes 5.10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. 1 Timothy 6.10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Hebrews 13.5, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. 1 Timothy 6, 7 through 8, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world, but if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. If you just have food and clothing and Jesus, are you content? If you just have food and clothing, would you be content? Or do you need your house and your car and your air conditioning and everything else? Paul seems to think if you have Jesus, you can be content with food and clothing, okay? Proverbs 30, 7 through 9, two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die, remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord, or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Don't make me too rich, God, or else I won't think I'll need you. But don't make me too poor, or else I might sin against you. Just give me what I need. Just give me what I need. 
Colossians 3, 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Why is coveting idolatrous? Because your thoughts, your hopes, your affections are on something else other than God to bring you joy and peace and contentment. That's why it's idolatrous. That's why it's idolatrous. So, with all these verses in mind, here's my simple question for you. Are you content with the life God gave you? Or are you, are you always wanting more? Are you content with your lot in life? Or are you always wanting more? Do you think that in the future you'll be satisfied? And that's when you'll be satisfied, but you can't really be satisfied now. Is that what you're thinking? Insert, this, insert whatever it is for you into this blank. If I just had blank, then I'd be able to rest and enjoy life. What you've put into that blank probably is an area where you're being covetous. Now, this is all of us. We do this all the time, all of us, me included, all right? I saw a car this morning, and I thought, I need that car, right? We do it all the time. What the Bible's going to say is that this is covetousness, and it's not a minor deal that it's to be put to death. Now, am I saying that it's wrong to make a bunch of money? No. Am I saying that it's wrong to grow your business? No. Covetousness is an issue of the heart. What I am saying, though, is I think you need to ask those around you if you wonder if you struggle with this issue. So if you're saying, okay, Zach, where's the line? Where's the line between just wanting something that's new, which isn't wrong, and coveting? Where is that line? I'm not going to answer that question for you. Because a lot of times that question is used so we don't actually have to follow these commands. I want you instead to take that question and ask your spouse, ask your community group, ask other Christians and say, is this okay for me to get, or am I being covetous? Or am I being covetous? Verse 3 again. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. The idea of naming is the idea of one's identity. So when you're baptized, you're baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You take on that identity. When my wife married me, she took my last name. What he's saying here is that these things are not to typify the Christian life. These things are not to typify the Christian life. Okay? Let's look at the next verse. Verse 4. But let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. The text is now going to shift from holy living to holy speaking. Now, I hate verse 4, okay? There are certain sins that I agree should be sins. Like I read not to murder, and I think that's a good rule. That's a really good rule. Or I read not to steal, and I think, man, that's a great rule. But I don't like this one, because this is one of the things I struggle with, okay? If there's a line of sin... In my joking, I like to run up to the line, kind of stick my toe over it like this, and then run back over. All right? That's what I like to do. And what this text is going to say is that not only should we have holy living, but we should have holy speaking. Okay? Let me give you a little example. So, I hate flying on airplanes. Okay? I hate flying on airplanes. I, I hate it. First time I ever flew on an airplane, I was a little kid, and we flew over a tornado. And as the flight attendants were laying in the aisle hanging onto the seats, and as my coke was hitting the ceiling, and as everyone was flying around everywhere, I thought to myself, is this how all flights are? Because this is awful, all right? It's terrifying. Ever since that time, I have hated flying on airplanes, okay? Now, anytime I tell somebody I don't like flying on airplanes, here's what they say to me. Well, Zach, you actually have a higher chance of dying by driving than flying on an airplane, as if that's supposed to help me. Here's something you're afraid of. Now, here's another thing you should be afraid of as well. It doesn't help. It's like me saying, I'm afraid of getting shot, and you're like, you should be afraid of getting stabbed too. Okay, well, I'll just be in fear all the time. That doesn't help. So when I fly now, you say, Zach, okay, you need to face your fears. I have and do. I've flown a bunch since then. I've flown internationally, but every time it is awful. 
I take anti-anxiety medicine, I sit there and lean against the, the window of the plane, and I just try not to die for 14 hours or wherever I'm flying, okay? I can't watch a movie, I can't read a book, and I also get airsick. So I sit there with my little barf bag, and I just wait for the thing to crash. That's what I do for however long the flight is. Now, let's say in a moment of sheer terror, we're going through turbulence or whatever, and I'm like, I can't take this anymore. I need this plane to land now. And I yell out, bomb! What's going to happen to me? Bad things, right? I am going to get arrested. Now, let's say I get arrested, and this is my defense. I say, whoa, 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 whoa. I didn't say bomb. My words said bomb. I I'm over here. Zach, I'm a person. My words are different than me. My words said bomb. I didn't say bomb. Is that going to work? No, because your words are linked to who you are. Here's what this text is saying. That if you have a foul mouth, if you have a dirty joking problem, the issue is not that you have a dirty mouth, it's that you have a dirty heart. The Bible will say out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. We know who we are by what we say. It's like if I have a glass of Kool-Aid and I knock it over onto the floor, that Kool-Aid was already in the glass and something just knocked it over and then you got to see it. That's what's going on in our heart. Out of the overflow of our heart, our mouths speak. And so this text is speaking to something much more than just saying words. It's speaking to a dirty heart. We even see this with Jesus being the Word of God. If you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. He's God's Word. You can't separate God from His Word. You can't separate us from our words. And this text is going to say that if you have these things, there's something broken inside of us. All right? Let's walk through each of these. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk. That word for foolish talk, don't think foolish talk here as like joking or being goofy. Okay? There, you, you can joke and be goofy in a non-sinful way. When it uses the word fool, think of the idea of the fool in the Bible. The fool is someone who walks in sin. It's the fool in Psalms that says in his heart there is no God. Or it's the fool in Proverbs that hangs out near the adulteress's house. So it's not saying you can't be goofy or silly. It's saying sinful speech. It's the Greek word morologia. Logia means words. Moros is where we get our word moron. All right? Now don't read the English word back onto the Greek meaning. The point, though, is it's foolish speech that's sinful. That's the idea. But let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. In Greek, that word for crude joking literally means wittiness. But again, the idea is not that all wittiness is sinful. It's wittiness linked with lewdness. It's wittiness that's used to make that dirty joke. There are a lot of things in the Bible that are not sinful in and of themselves, but they can be used in a sinful way. Okay? So I'll give you a few examples. Anger. Is it sinful always to be angry? No. There's a righteous anger and there's an unrighteous anger. Okay? What about sarcasm or mocking? I've heard some Christians say, we should never use sarcasm. It's all over the Bible. God mocks Job, Jesus mocks the Pharisees, Paul mocks the Judaizers. There's a right way to mock and make fun of and be sarcastic towards evil. But then there's an unrighteous way to use sarcasm where you're just using it to cut people down. Or cynicism. Jesus is super cynical. He's not very confident in mankind's ability to save ourselves. There's a righteous cynicism. But then you can also have an unrighteous cynicism, which just causes you to become bitter and jaded towards people. Well, wittiness is the same kind of idea. There's a righteous kind of wittiness that you can use to lift people up, that you can use to remember scripture, that you can use to edify. But then there's the type of wittiness that this is mentioning, which is linked with lewdness, where there's uh, sexual joking and these kind of things. All right? So this text is not against wittiness. It is against crass, dirty, evil speech. That's the idea. I'll give you an example. You guys want to hear a dirty joke? I'm kidding. I'm not going to tell you one. I just said no dirty joking, all right? So we'll move on. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. Now look at this next part. This is fascinating. But instead, 
let there be thanksgiving. The three things Paul has just talked about were sexual immorality, covetousness, and dirty speech. Instead of those things, he's saying, let there be thanksgiving. By the way, thanksgiving is how you battle each of these things. So if you're covetous, and you always are never satisfied, and you always want more and more and more, or you want something that belongs to somebody else, the way you fight covetousness is not by just trying to not covet. It's by being thankful for what you do have. It's by remembering the blessings you've been given. It's by remembering your salvation. It's by remembering the grace of God towards you. It's by listing out all the good gifts that you've been given and knowing that those come from God, every good and perfect gift. If you struggle with foul speech, the issue is not just your mouth. The issue is not a mouth problem. It's a heart problem. The way you battle that is by focusing on the gospel, focusing on what you've been given, realizing the reality of grace, these kind of things. And lastly, and I think this one's super interesting, if you struggle with sexual immorality, the one of the ways the Bible will tell you to deal with that is by being thankful and rejoicing in your spouse. We have a tendency not to think that way. So in 1 Corinthians, some people are going to Paul, and they've been with temple prostitutes. So they've been worshiping demons with prostitutes. And Paul, if, if somebody came to me who had been worshiping demons with prostitutes and said, I really struggle with sexual immorality, should I get married? I would say you should never get married. You should deal with all your sin and never get married, but that's not the advice Paul gives. The advice Paul gives is you should get married. Let me give you some passages. Proverbs 5, 15 and 18. This is about sexuality within marriage. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. The way in Proverbs you stay away from the adulteress is by rejoicing in your spouse. 1 Corinthians 7, 2-4, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So let me address married people and then I'll address single people. If you are married and you are struggling in this area of sexual immorality, the Bible is not asking you to kill your sex drive or to tone it down. The Bible is asking you to redirect it and take that love that you have and put it towards your spouse, okay? And put it towards your spouse. Now, let me be clear. Your spouse cannot solve your sin problem. Sex is not the solution to sin. Only the gospel is the solution to sin. But the idea of these texts is that it helps. It helps stack the deck in your favor, okay? Now, if you're single, let me say something to you, a few things. Number one, if you're single and you know Christ, you have the Holy Spirit, you have the ability to walk in righteousness. You have the ability to say no to sin. If you're wondering, can I really live a full human life without being married? Yes! Can you think of somebody else in the Bible who lived a full human life in fellowship with God and wasn't married? Jesus, right? So yes, yes you can. But I'll also say this to you if you're single. If you struggle with sexual morality and you want to get married, the Bible would say, go ahead and get married. I talk to a lot of people in evangelicalism who are single and they have this like false guilt because they really want to get married. The Bible would say, do it. Well, Zach, I, I, I think I want to get married too much, so I think I've made it an idol. Okay, well, go ahead and get married and let's deal with the idol along the way. If I idolize my kids, I don't put them up for adoption until I deal with my sin. I love my kids and deal with my sin along the way. And so that's what this text would say. The way you fight these three things is by thanksgiving, is by thanksgiving. Verse 5, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, there it is, again, it's linked to the idea of idolatry, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Okay, let's talk about what this does and doesn't mean. 
This doesn't mean if you've ever committed these things, you have no inheritance in Christ, okay? That would be all of us then. The text also doesn't mean that if you're someone who loves Jesus and you're struggling with one of these sins, but you're fighting it, you're putting it to death, you're in community, you're in accountability, you're doing whatever you need to to fight your sin, up to and including gouging out your eye and cutting off your hand, this text is not saying that you're condemned. If you're someone who loves Christ and you're fighting sin, the kind of person mentioned in this text is the kind of person who stops fighting. It's the kind of person who gives themselves over to their sin and says, I know it's wrong and I don't care. This is just who I am. So this text is not so much meant to scare you. It's meant to say, you've been freed from these things. So walk in that freedom. A New Testament scholar named Clinton Arnold describes it like this. This clause does not then function as a warning to believers that they should be aware of their action lest they forfeit their inheritance. It has the exact opposite force. Paul wants them to be assured that they are heirs of the eternal kingdom. Because of that, they should now live like kingdom people and serve their loving and merciful God with a heart full of gratitude. That's the idea. It's very similar to 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. We're going to throw that up on the screen because I want you to see it. It's very, very similar to this text. It says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? We just saw that. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, there's sexual immorality, nor idolaters, that's linked to coveting, nor adulterers, there's more sexual immorality, nor men who practice homosexuality, there's more sexual immorality, nor thieves, that's linked to greed and uh, covetousness, nor the greedy, that's linked to covetousness, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But look at verse 11. Look at verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Here's what this text is saying. When it comes to sin, it's not us versus them. It's not us versus culture or us versus the world. It's not a bunch of perfect people saying, you dirty people out there should be like us. It's realizing that we are sinners. We are broken. This is who we were, but we've been forgiven in Christ. There's only two kinds of people, and it's really forgiven sinners and unforgiven sinners. That's really it, okay? That's really it. As one pastor says, it's not, there's not good people and bad people. There's bad people and Jesus. That's it. Everybody fits in one of those two categories. And so what this text is going to say, though, is if you're a kingdom person, you've got to walk like a kingdom person. You've got to walk like a kingdom person. Look at verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Here's my question to you. What does that mean? What does it mean to deceive someone with empty words? Here's what this text means. Don't let anyone tell you that the things I just said are really no big deal. One of the marks of false teachers is that they teach false doctrine. But another mark of false teachers is that they teach a false sexual ethic. We're actually seeing that a lot in our culture where some quote-unquote Christian author or Christian pastor or whatever starts allowing a view of sexuality that no one in all of church history has ever held and everybody just embraces it. This text is going to say, stay away from those that think that coveting is no big deal. We all do it. It's no big deal. Stay away from those that think that sexual morality is no big deal. Everybody does this. It's no big deal. Stay away from those that think having a foul mouth is no big deal. A foul mouth is, a, is an indication of a foul heart, and that's a big deal to God. That's a big deal to God. He's saying be careful of thinking these things don't matter. What we need is we need an exalted view of how bad sin is. But above that, we need an exalted view of how much grace there is for us, how much Christ loves us, okay? But we can't act like if we struggle with these things that everything's just fine. You can't manage sin. You can't keep sin as like a pet. You have to kill sin. 
you have to kill sin. Let me give you an example. So <clears throat> when, uh, when we first hired, uh, or when the elders first hired Carl on for our family minister here at Parkway, one of the first things he did is he came up with his wife, and he came up with his kids, and he spent all day cleaning out the preschool rooms, all right? So they vacuumed, and they sanitized all the toys. They found a, an eight-pound an eight sledgehammer in there, by the way. So super glad we found that. Your kids are not flattened. They're still out, all right? They're still doing great. So they spent all day cleaning this room and sanitizing this room, four of them, all day. And then it comes to the end of the day, and Carl's like, man, that was a long day. I'm ready to go home. And then he goes, where's my pocket knife? And it hit us. <gasps> There's a knife somewhere in the kids' room, all right? Now, in that moment, we can't say, that's no big deal. Let's not look for it. We don't want Carl to feel bad. He just came on staff. He's just had a long day. We can't do that. We have to deal with that knife amongst the toys. Because if we don't, that's going to come back to be something really, really bad, okay? Now, a lot of you are still wondering, did we ever find it? Right now, maybe there's a kid in there with a switchblade telling the other kids what to do. Right, he's got some cigarettes rolled up in his sleeve like West Side Story. He's telling him what to do. Well, we did find it, and here's where we found it. We actually found it in the dumpster outside. When Carl had gone to throw away a bag of trash, the clip of that knife caught on that trash bag, and it went into the dumpster. So Jeff Ashley, at night, in the winter, got into the dumpster and found Carl's knife, okay? We actually took a picture of it, and then we tagged it with the line from the prodigal son that he wished even to eat the, the pods that the pigs had, or something like that, as, we, as he was in the, uh, the dumpster, but we found it. But the point being, we couldn't just act like that was no big deal. We couldn't just act like, yes, there can be a knife among a hundred toys. It has to be dealt with. It has to be dug up. It has to be rooted out. Verse, verses 7 through 10. Therefore, do not become partakers with them. That doesn't mean don't hang out with lost people. It means don't partake in their sin. I want you to be friends with drug dealers. I don't want you to do drugs. I want you to be friends with thieves. I don't want you to steal. That's what it means. Don't be partners with them in their sin. Therefore, do not become, uh, I'm sorry. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Notice that it doesn't say you were in darkness and now you are in light. It is a statement about our identity. You were darkness, and therefore you did darkness things, and now you are light, and therefore you walk in light. Verse 9, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Instead of sexual immorality, greed, and filthy language, he now gives three other things we are to pursue, what is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Romans 12.2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. John 3, 20 through 21, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Here's what these three verses are saying. You used to have one type of identity, and so you did one thing. You now have a new identity, so you do another thing. Let me give you a little illustration, okay? So everybody look at me. Everybody pay attention to this. If you don't take anything else away from the sermon, I'm fine with that as long as you take this one point because this is the central point of the sermon. Let me give you an illustration, okay? Imagine a boy who has a dad. He doesn't have a mom. He's a little boy who has a dad, and his dad is wicked to the core. His dad abuses him. His dad molests him. His dad comes home drunk and just beats the mess out of him. He's never heard the words, I love you, from his dad. 
He's never heard the words, I'm proud of you, from his dad. His dad makes fun of him. His dad doesn't bathe him. His dad puts cigarettes out on this boy. He's never had a birthday party. This boy doesn't even have a bed. The dad's not going to spend money on a bed for the kid. He doesn't care about this kid. The kid has to just sleep in the corner on the floor of whatever room he falls asleep in. Sometimes late at night, that little boy will go into the kitchen and try to eat some crackers quietly. He doesn't want to wake up his dad or else he knows he will be abused. And so he eats those crackers quietly because he's starving, because his dad just forgets to feed him. He doesn't care. And then all of a sudden, CPS comes and takes away that, that kid, and he puts that kid with a dad who's a good father, who's a loving dad. This dad tells the boy, I love you. The boy's never, felt, never heard that before. This dad tells the boy, I'm proud of you. The kid's never heard that before. This dad reaches over to pat his son on the head, and the kid flinches because he's used to being beaten. And he reaches over and he says, I'm not here to beat you. I love you. The dad cares for this kid and bathes this kid and spends time with this kid and hugs this kid. This dad buys this kid a bed. This kid's never had a bed. So he buys this kid a bed, a bed and then the dad goes back downstairs and he comes back up and the kid is sleeping on the floor. And he says to him, you don't have to sleep on the floor anymore. That was your old life. That was your old family. You have a new father now. You have a new family now. And so he picks him up and he puts him in the bed. Two weeks later, he goes back upstairs. The kid is again on the floor, and he says, son, I love you. You don't have to sleep on the floor. You get to sleep in the bed. You get something that's better. And he puts him in the, be in the bed. The dad hears something rustling in the kitchen at two in the morning, and so he goes, and it's that little boy, and he's eating crackers. He's sneaking food because he thinks that he has to, and he says, son, you, you don't have to eat these crackers. I'll feed you. And so he sits down with the son, and they have a midnight snack. They have Oreos and milk. And the dad gives the kid the good part of the Oreo, you know, with the cream side, and he gives that to the kid. Now, everybody look at me. This is really, really important. Who is this little boy? If you are a Christian, this is your story. This is your story. That's who this little boy is. The Bible teaches that we're not just born morally neutral, that we are born as, quote, children of wrath, that we belong to the prince of the power of the air. That is the devil. That means when I was born, I was put into the cold, icy, red fingers of my father, the devil, and he raised me to be like him. He raised me to hate God. He raised me to walk in sin. That's what he did. He was an evil, abusive master. But in the gospel, when you repent and you trust Christ, you are adopted into a new family with a good father who does not give you a stone when you ask for bread. All of the Christian life is learning to be what we already are. When we sin... Really what we're doing is we're having an identity crisis. We're forgetting for that brief second that we belong to a new family and we have a new identity and we have a new last name. That royal blood runs through our veins. We forget that and that's why we sin. And so my hope is with whatever sin you're struggling with today, you might hear God say the words that you get to sleep in the bed. You don't have to sleep on the floor anymore. You don't have to give yourself over to that sin. That's your old life. That's your old identity. You're part of a new family now, and you're learning what it looks like to be a part of that new family and all the blessings that that entails. Verses 11 through 14, and then we'll be done. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. Look at verse 14. For anything that becomes visible is light. Let me just mention what that means real quick. The idea here is when there is someone in sin and the truth of the gospel shines on them, 
Not only does it expose their sin, but it also transforms that person. You know how you leave drapes out in the sun and they become faded? They're actually affected by that light to become lighter? That's the idea of what the truth of the gospel does to sinners and broken hearts. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Here's what these texts mean. There's a contrast here. We were just told to bear fruit in light, and now we are told not to have anything to do with the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead we are to expose them. Let me give you some ways that we are to, instead of walking in darkness, expose darkness, okay? Number one, it means we call sin, sin. It means we call sin, sin. We don't say that it's a preference. We don't say that it's just one, somebody's way of thinking. We don't say that what's good for you is good for you, what's bad for me is bad for me. We call sin, sin. Number two, we live righteous lives that contrast with the world around us. That contrast with the world around us. But number three, and I think this is actually the main thrust of this text, is that we are to rebuke and expose sin in each other's lives. In fact, where it says to instead expose them, it's a Greek word that's used in other pieces of Greek literature to mean rebuke. The idea is we can't just act like there's not a knife in the children's room if there is. We have to call that out. And so what we do with each other as we walk in community, insert plug for community groups, is that we hold each other accountable for sin. Why do we confess our sin in community groups? Well, because the Bible says, quote, confess your sins one to another. And because this text here says that we are to expose sin amongst believers if we're walking in these things that Paul is addressing in this congregation, that Paul is addressing in this congregation. Lastly, what does it mean at the end of verse 14 when it says, for anything that is visible uh, is light, we talked about that, therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. That is not a direct quote from anywhere in the Old Testament, okay? It's kind of a conflation of Isaiah 26, 19, Isaiah 61, and maybe some other passages. Really what it is, though, is it's a popular Christian phrase, a popular Christian mantra. Scholars will call this a hymn. They don't mean a song you sing. They mean something that Christians would encourage each other with in the first century. I'll give you a modern example. If it's Easter time and I say, he is risen, what do you say? He's risen indeed, right? Or if in church you say, God is good, and someone will sometimes say, all the time. There are these Christian phrases that we know that we use to encourage one another. That's what this is. It's based loosely off places in the Old Testament, but it's this idea of saying, Awake, O sleeper, meaning person who's in sin, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Now, let me end with something, and then we'll have the guys come forward to serve communion. I think that there are two kinds of people in here today, and so I want to address both of you with this last little phrase. If you are somebody who doesn't know Christ, maybe you think you know Christ because you did some ritual when you were six, you prayed a prayer or walked an aisle or got baptized or whatever, but you've never been transformed by the truth of the gospel. You think Christianity is basically about being a good person or something like that. If that's you, my encouragement is today that you would repent of your sins, that you would repent of your own righteousness, and that you would ask Jesus to save you, that you would bow the knee to him, that you would confess him to be both Savior and Lord, Earlier in the text when it said the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of God, that's the same kingdom. There's a weird theology out there that says that you can be a follower of Christ and not have an inheritance. Ignore all that. If you want to follow Christ, you must accept him as Savior and Lord. My encouragement to you is if you don't know Christ, would you bow the knee this morning? As I pray, would you ask Jesus to save you? Would you ask him to transform your life? Would you give him your sins? You don't have to clean yourself up. Go to him dirty and he will make you clean. Would you do that this morning? And if you do that, would you let one of us know? 
If you come to know Christ for the first time today, would you let one of us know? We'd love to follow up with you, get you discipled, let you meet some people here at the church. We'd love that, okay? I think a lot of us, though, are in the second category, okay? In the first category, you need to hear, awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you, meaning come to Christ for the first time. But I think for a lot of us, we already know Christ, but we still struggle with these things. Is there anybody in here who's never had a lustful thought, who's never wanted something that doesn't belong to them, who's said only perfect things out of their mouth? The book of James would say, if you can do that, you're perfect. That's not us. We're broken, sinful people. So whatever you struggle with this morning, whatever, you're, whatever just you feel shackled to, my encouragement to you is remember the truths of the gospel. Remember the truth of your salvation. For you to awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you, means to repent and come back to the Jesus who originally saved you. Give him your sin. He loves you. He already knows that you're broken. One of the things I love about that analogy that I just gave about the kid that's adopted into that home, that's the kind of kids that God adopts. We're all God's problem children. We're all broken, hurting kids. That's who God adopts. He takes the worst of the worst. That's one of the great things about him. That's who he shows mercy to. So if you feel like, man, I just can't seem to get it. I feel like God's problem child. Welcome to the family. Welcome to the family. Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Let's pray as the men come forward to get ready to serve communion. Father, we come before you only because Christ has made a way uh, that we can be adopted, that we can be forgiven, that we can have our sins washed away and become as white as snow. And uh, I thank you, Spirit, that you indwell those who know Christ, that you uh, encourage us into love and good works, and you convict us of sin, and you guide us and preserve us. We love you, our one Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And I pray right now that you would encourage us, that you would be with everybody here. If somebody doesn't know you, I pray that today they might put their hope in you. They might put their trust in you. I pray that if somebody does know you, they would continue to put their hope in you, that they would give you their sin, that they would stop asking Jesus to break every chain because he's already broken every chain 2,000 years ago. And they would rest in the freedom given in the gospel. That's my prayer. And so would you be with us as we now partake of communion. We love you. It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit we pray. Amen.